A recurrent theme in my podcast is that most medical students and residents don't get training in sexual medicine and menopause, which is why most doctors aren't experts and why so many women get frustrated that finding solutions for their menopause symptoms all too often is a do-it-yourself research project. But today, I'm joined by someone who is passionate and dedicated about educating the doctors of tomorrow. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. When it comes to menopause, midlife, and what comes after, I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. If women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information. I first met Dr. Terry Gibbs, an OBGYN in Ohio, at a medical conference a few years ago. Our paths have crossed many times since then, not just because we go to the same conferences, but because we share a passion for education. He is the founder of the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative, a multidisciplinary organization of sexual medicine clinicians. Dr. Gibbs is dedicated to promoting evidence-based knowledge to both medical professionals and the public. He's made a real difference in the sexual medicine and menopause world. And I'm not saying these nice things just because he said my podcast is his favorite. In any case, I really enjoyed being a guest on his podcast, Sex Med for Sex Ed. And after our conversation, asked if I could share the episode with my audience. Keep in mind the intended audience is primarily medical professionals, particularly medical students. So many of our comments are directed towards clinicians. But I think you'll also appreciate and enjoy this episode of Sex Ed for Sex Med. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sex Ed for Sex Med, a premier resource of evidence-based information and education for students, residents, and the public. Today, we have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Lauren Stryker. Dr. Stryker is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Feinberg School of Medicine, and she's the host for Dr. Stryker's Inside Information podcast, which happens to be my favorite. And so thank you for joining us today. Appreciate the depth of research you do. So I was really excited for showcasing uh, a lot of your work. In fact, my first question has to do with your landmark, in my opinion, landmark paper on postmenopausal dyspareunia, because there's not that much out there, and it was so extensive. Anybody taking care of women, especially in the midlife, should be required to read this. And you discussed an extensive medical history and, and exam, along with a differential diagnosis of 34 conditions. How does one uh, accomplish all this in clinical practice? Well, first of all, let me just start by talking a little bit about how that paper came to be. This paper was published in the journal Menopause, which is the journal of the Menopause Society. I had given grand rounds at Harvard on this topic, and Dr. Schiff, who's chairman at, at Harvard, is also the editor of the journal. So he asked me if I would write this comprehensive review of painful sex, of dyspareunia postmenopause. And I just said, sure, you know, because you don't say no to Dr. Schiff, right? And little did I know what a monumental task it would be. And to your point, there's not a lot written about it. In fact, there's almost 
nothing written about it. And it took me almost a year to write that review. I kept asking for extensions, which is unlike me. And when I finally turned it in, it was 80 pages, which is quite frankly, a book, not an article. And the editors of the journal got back to me and said, no, this is this is <laughs> not going to work. So we cut it and cut it and cut it and cut it. And, and what you actually read was really only a portion of it. And and it is overwhelming the number of conditions that can cause painful sex in the postmenopause crowd. And and the reason why they asked me to write this article and the reason why it's such a big topic is because too often women who are postmenopause go to see their doctor and if it's discussed at all and we know it's really discussed it's always assumed that her painful sex is because of vaginal dryness as a result of low estrogen. And many times it is. Having said that, there are many, many other things that can cause painful intercourse, and those are generally not considered, particularly if someone is getting their care by telehealth, because they just, you know, they, they and some of these telehealth companies are quite good, but they will say to the woman, what's happening? Oh, it hurts every time I try and have intercourse, and then they get a, a prescription for vaginal estrogen. And it may or may not work depending if there's something else going on. So, so to answer your question, how are we going to address this during a routine gynecologic exam? And the answer to that is you don't. This is not part of well woman care. Too often women go to see their physicians or their other clinicians and they have an expectation that during that annual visit, they're going to cover it all, not only while women care, but issues about weight loss, libido, painful sex, incontinence. I mean, you and I can both make a list of about 5,000 things that may come up and may need to be considered. And that's why there are problem visits as opposed to well woman visits. So from a practical point of view, from a, a clinician's point of view, if a woman comes in and says, I'm having painful intercourse. I'm not able to have in intercourse. It is perfectly reasonable at that point to say, this is something that I can help you with, but this is going to take some time and I have not allotted that time today. So I'm going to give you some reading material to educate yourself. And then right now, before you leave, we are going to make a return appointment where we can address this in a way that will truly be useful to you, as opposed to just throwing some vaginal estrogen at someone and say, you know, bye, see you. And sometimes that happens, quite frankly, because the clinician really doesn't know how to help someone. But a lot of times it happens because they simply don't have time. And from the patient's point of view, they need to be okay with that. You know, a lot of women say, are you kidding? I sat in your waiting room for an hour. This is my annual visit. I took time off work. My primary issue is the fact that sex is painful. And then I went to see the doctor and they brushed it off. And sometimes they may brush it off. We're not, I'm not saying that never happens, but sometimes it may truly just be a matter of time and you need to make another appointment. I mean, it is a problem, so make a problem visit appointment. And that's a great answer. And I, because, um, you know, we're expected to push everything in one little, you know, 15 minute appointment. Yeah, I mean, come on, this right? isn't realistic. 
Yeah, this isn't realistic. And you know what's so interesting is that when I used to do obstetrics and I would say, are you thinking about becoming pregnant? And if they would say yes, I would say, great. I would like you to come back and schedule a preconception visit. I never got pushed back from that ever. They were happy to do that. And, and then I would have them fill out a form with all their genetic history and their lifestyle issues and all of that. And then they would come in and very often bring a partner, husband, if that was the case. And we would sit down and talk about what they needed to know about getting pregnant and preconception strategies. And, and everyone was fine with that. That was just like no problem. Yeah. But the minute someone comes in and they have incontinence and you say, I have a lot of information I want to give you, let's schedule another visit, they get upset. Yeah, that's happened quite often. But mm-hmm. I think regarding the paper, how many times have I have I seen things where people come to me and they said, well, this person and this person did this and this, but nothing worked. Well, and, so, and because, as you know, 90% of the time, it's because no one examined them, <laughs> you know, particularly right. if they went to see an internist, I'm sorry, but if they go to see an internist or a family practice doctor and say they have painful sex without an exam, they will recommend lubricants. And they will recommend moisturizers and they may give them a prescription for vaginal estrogen. And this requires a careful exam, not only of the vulva and the vagina, but also the pelvic floor muscles, because all of those will impact on the ability to have pain-free penetrative sex. And this really segues into another uh, question I had, and that was your last section in the paper was on treatment failures. And I really appreciated that because a lot of people in their reviews don't talk about, you know, here's the treatments, but don't talk about when people come back and say, hey, that didn't work. And and I really appreciated that segment. Talk a little bit about that. You've already started talking about that, but but why do treatments fail? Besides, yeah. I actually, I did a podcast um, episode on this that's called, yeah. I'm using vaginal estrogen, but sex still hurts like hell. So why do treatments fail? Number one is you're treating the wrong thing. I mean, that's what I've already <laughs> talked about. You know, yeah. you can give a bucket full of vaginal estrogen to somebody with lichen sclerosis and a, and a tense pelvic floor, and it's not going to do any good. So that's number one, is that someone may be failing the treatment because it's the wrong treatment or because they have a second thing going on. Someone might have genital urinary syndrome of menopause and benefit from estrogen, but they also might have a pelvic floor issue. The second thing is too often women are treating the vagina, but not the vestibule. The vestibule, of course, being the entry to the vagina. And it doesn't matter how nice the room is if you can't get through the door. (laughs) So you have to treat the door. A lot of women are using a vaginal estrogen insert or ring and the vestibule is tight and dry. So sometimes it's just a matter of, of treating the vestibule. The other thing is consistency. You know, a lot of women don't really appreciate that this is lifelong treatment. And so they're given a prescription, they use it and it's better, and then they stop using it and things get worse. When we talk about treatment, we talk about repair and maintenance, and both are equally important. And the treatment may be different when it comes to repair and maintenance. Too often you hear like, use it or lose it. And not if it hurts, if you use it, it's just gonna make it worse but that's part of maintenance. The other thing that happens is that a lot of women, because they're fearful of vaginal estrogen, which of course we know that that is 
based on mythology, not on real information. But if they think that vaginal estrogen is potentially harmful, then what they will do is they will use less than is prescribed. And they think that, well, you know, I'm not comfortable putting in something every day, so I'm going to use it every other day. And as one patient told me, she was taking her vaginal estrogen on alternate days. And on the days she used it, she worried about breast cancer. And on the days she didn't use it, she worried about painful sex. So every day she was worrying about something. It's it's really important for clinicians to let their patients know that not only is it not dangerous to use the prescription as we are advising, but it's not gonna help if you just use a little bit. And what's really interesting and is somewhat counterintuitive is that the less estrogen you use, the more that gets absorbed. And if you think about it, it makes sense. The tissue is very, very thin. So if you look at any studies that look absorption of a local vaginal estrogen, it's going to be at its highest in the first week or so. And then once that tissue thickens up, then it stays put in the vagina and on the vulva. So by using less, you're actually absorbing more. So it is the wrong thing to do in every way. Another thing you talked about, CBD. And I'm just wondering if you'd comment on your experience with patients' use of CBD for uh, dyspareunia. When it comes to cannabis, it's, it's really difficult because there's really no research. We have no data. And you and I are both data-driven. We like to tell women what we know to be true based on evidence-based medicine. Good studies that have placebo controls that are carefully done. And that's what makes a study meaningful. Well, when it comes to cannabis and to CBD, there are no studies. And people always say, well, are there going to be studies? And the answer is probably not. Because when you think in terms of what motivates a pharmaceutical company to do very well-designed studies, it's because it's the only way they can bring it to market is to get FDA approval. But CBD is already out there. Cannabis is already out there and nobody is motivated to spend the millions of dollars that it takes to really study something appropriately. But we do know through various surveys that have been done, including one of my surveys that I'm about to publish, is that at least, at least one out of four menopause women are using cannabis for relief of some symptom, whether it's hot flashes, sleep, or vaginal dryness and pain. So specifically, if we look at the role of CBD that is applied directly to the vulva or the vagina, is that going to help in terms of painful intercourse? And the answer is, I have no data to support this, but anecdotally, yes. And theoretically, it should help. Why? Well, because CBD is a vasodilator and anything that's going to increase blood flow to the vaginal and vulvar tissues is going to help with lubrication. We also know that CBD is an anti-inflammatory and a lot of the issue that's going on with long-term vaginal dryness and pain is that you have an inflammatory response, which is only going to make it more painful. So from a theoretic point of view, it seems like it might be helpful. And anecdotally, it appears to be helpful. In my survey, which is close to 500 women now, when I ask if it's helpful as far as pain with intercourse, about 90%, 90% say that it's helpful. Now, this is not a scientific study. This is the patient's perception. But having said that, that's pretty remarkable. So when patients ask me about it, I tell them, 
I, I really don't think there's any harm in using vaginal CBD. Cannabis, systemic cannabis is, is a little different. There are some precautions. But as far as a local application of CBD, it doesn't appear to be harmful. And there is evidently some reason to believe that it could be helpful. That's awesome. You talked about lasers. Yeah, it won't overtake estrogen, I understand. But when it comes to dyspareunia because of uh, lack of estrogen, do you think it will ever be at the top of the list for treatments? No, I don't. But I do think it should be part of the toolbox. And there's been a lot of studies that have come out which show that it doesn't work, including a study that gets a lot of play, yes. uh, the one by Lee L.I. that came out um, not too long ago. And, and I wrote a commentary on that study, which was published basically looking at the study and saying, this was a terrible study. It never, ever, ever should have been published. The majority of the women in that study weren't even sexually active. They didn't treat the vestibule, to my earlier point, and the settings they used were the wrong settings. But yet, this study is promoted in our circles all over the place as proof positive that laser doesn't work. I do think that laser works. It's like everything else. It's got to be done by the right person in a patient who has been properly evaluated and it needs to be done in the right way. And I ran a laser program for six years and kept very close track of outcomes. And over 90% of women had excellent outcomes with using laser. But when I would advise someone to use laser, I would also do a very thorough evaluation of other potential causes of dyspareunia. We know that it does not treat lichen sclerosis and other conditions, and also looking at their pelvic floor. So when I treat dyspareunia, and no matter what I use, whether it's laser, estrogen, or anything else, more often than not, uh, those women are also advised to do other things such as pelvic floor physical therapy. But but laser is highly problematic. It is very expensive. It will never be covered by insurance, never. And so, yeah, part of the toolbox, but it's never going to be at the top of the list. I mean, when I look at, at people that use laser, you know, the, who are those people? Well, category one is women, they think that they can't use vaginal estrogen. There's nobody who can't use vaginal estrogen, period. I don't care what kind of cancer you have. I don't care if you've had blood clots. No, you're not going to get dementia. Everyone can use vaginal estrogen. The other group that that tends to use it are people that just say, you know what? I don't want to put something in my vagina twice a week. I just rather do something once a year. Okay, then you get to do laser if you want to write a check. Yeah, I thought it was going to be, you know, the answer to the women who are afraid of estrogen and that had breast cancer. We did free laser for women with breast cancer in my center. And and we did, certainly had a lot of takers and they were very, very grateful. But as part of the counseling, when they would come in for laser, we would reassure them and say, you know, you can use estrogen. It's fine. It's going to be covered by your insurance. It's much less expensive. It will work just as well. And there's nothing wrong with using vaginal estrogen. You know, we weren't trying to sell laser because we weren't selling it. We were doing it for free, right? These women still wanted laser. They were so afraid of using a drop of estrogen that they really thought that this was going to increase their risk of, of breast cancer or breast cancer recurrence. And as you and I well know, when you look at known risk factors for breast cancer, things like alcohol and being significantly overweight, those are the risk factors. And yet women seem to be just fine with doing that, you know, with, with having their glass of wine every night, but yet they're they're terrified of putting a drop of estrogen on their vagina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every day you hear that every day. 
You, you recently talked at the Menopause Society annual meeting. I, I really enjoyed uh, your talk about postmenopausal uh, orgasm disorder. And you discussed the types of afferent uh, nerves in the clitoris. Would you talk a little bit about uh, the importance of those when it comes to orgasm for the postmenopausal woman? So the lecture that I gave at the Menopause Society was, first of all, very frustrating for me because they gave me 20 minutes and I am a fast talker, but I have hours of things to say about this, which is why it's my next book right, I, I'm right. writing now. Yeah, yeah. And, my, and my next book coming out is about postmenopause orgasmic difficulties, because we know that over 50% of women have a great deal of difficulty having an orgasm. And just yesterday, I was quoted in the New York Times about an article that came out about alcohol and orgasm. And is alcohol going to get in the way of your orgasm? And I said, basically, what all the other experts say is that a small amount of alcohol can help in terms of arousal and, and disinhibition, but a large amount is going to be a um, central nervous system depressant, which is going to decrease the ability of having an orgasm. But what they didn't talk about, even though I had talked to the reporter about it for a long time, is that's talking about central effects. We need to talk about what's going on in the clitoris. And to answer your question, in a postmenopause woman, what's going on in the clitoris is those 10,000 teeny tiny little nerve endings. Well, they are not working so well anymore as a consequence of age and potentially medication and lack of estrogen. Those nerves are not detecting sensation in the way that they did premenopause. And so, therefore, the only way to address postmenopause orgasm in a woman who has desensitization of those clitoral nerves is to make those nerves either healthier by increasing blood flow or by increasing stimulation. And, and we know that a vibrator, of course, is one way to do that. And not just because it's more intense, but because the nerve endings that respond to vibration actually hang around a lot longer and are healthier than the nerve endings that respond to things like soft touch or stroking. Even knowing that is something that is useful in terms of enhancing the ability of someone to, to have an orgasm. You know, we've talked a little bit about things like CBD and local vaginal estrogen and how women don't treat the vestibule. But my mantra is while you're at it, go north and put it on your clitoris as well, because that is going to enhance blood flow to the clitoris, which will in turn enhance nerve health and also arousal, and you need to be aroused in order to have an orgasm. I always appreciated you've you've talked so much about how uh, so few women are stimulated through penile penetration. Well, I mean, that's like, okay, let's just say no one. I mean, the <laughs> idea that anyone has an orgasm with penile penetration without some kind of direct clitoral stimulation, it, it happens, but it's right. pretty rare. But even, and I, and I mentioned this briefly, you know, during my talk, is that even a partner who is aware that clitoral stimulation is important, it may be that the things that worked pre-menopause are not going to work post-menopause, things like manual stimulation or oral sex, just because those nerve endings are no longer as responsive as they used to be. And when we talk about toolboxes, I refer to a vibrator as a tool, not a toy, because this should be part of every post-menopause woman's 
toolbox, along with her silicone-based lubricant and perhaps her local vaginal estrogen. During our, this last podcast that we did, colleagues and I reviewed uh, the annual meeting that I just talked about. For you, what was the most important topic discussed at the annual Menopause Society meeting? Well, the theme was precision medicine, and it was a really good theme. You know, Lisa Larkin, of course, was the, the program chair, and I think she did a fabulous job. And I was on the committee, on the scientific committee, and that was something that we talked about a long time. This idea that one size does not fit all when it comes to treating various problems, that theme was really appropriately addressed, whether you are treating breast cancer or bone health or vaginal health, that it needs to be precision medicine, meaning that your treatment is going to depend on who that person is and the specific things that have caused that problem to occur instead of just giving everyone the same treatment. That was really the, the important message. And then there are the, the talks that I just liked that I thought they were great, um, that they were great fun. And, you know, of course the one on skin I thought was terrific. And, <laughs> and in fact, she is coming on to be a guest on my podcast. Yes, I've heard you say that. That's the talk. The keynote, yeah, Susan Dominus, who wrote the article on menopause in the New York Times. She was a lovely woman who I had a chance to meet and, and chat with her after. And her talk was was excellent. It really is the best conference of the year. It and, is. And, and quite frankly, it's the only conference that I would go to if I even if I wasn't speaking. Yeah, you know, I tend to go to conferences that I'm asked to speak just because you can only go to so many conferences a year. Right. So it is extremely, extremely rare for me to attend a conference if I'm not speaking. But and this one I generally do speak. And I did this year. And but even if I didn't speak, I would still go. Yeah, so many things, so many things. It was such a good conference. One subject that was covered pretty extensively was the subject of misinformation and disinformation. Yeah. And in your opinion, again, what's a big example of misinformation in our space of sexual medicine yeah. and well, I will confess I did not go to that lecture. And the reason I didn't go is because I've written about it so many times. I thought, you know, I don't need to hear someone else's take on it. Right, right. But when I think in terms of misinformation, and I, I do have an episode on this that's called Navigating Menopause Celebrity Style. It's really, so it really falls into two categories. There's misinformation that people get from the wrong people, which is celebrities and such, which are generally selling product. And then there's misinformation that they get from their own doctors. And to me, that's the most disturbing. The doctors and other clinicians that tell their patients estrogen is a last resort, estrogen is dangerous, estrogen is going to give you dementia, and estrogen is going to give you cancer. In many ways, that is even more egregious than the people that get misinformation from celebrities. I mean, celebrities aren't supposed to know, even though people act like they do, but your doctor's supposed to know. And years ago, when I was on Oprah uh, with Suzanne Summers talking about her compounded estrogen therapy and all the crazy stuff that's in her book. And, you know, and I came on very, very strongly about, you know, how these compounding people were taking advantage of women and they were just making money and, and Suzanne Summers was just making money and this and that. And there are a lot of things in life you would like to do a do-over. And I would so like to do a do-over <laughs> of that program because my approach now is very different. I don't blame Suzanne Summers. She's a celebrity. You know, may she rest in peace. She just died. But I, I don't blame Suzanne Summers. She's a celebrity who found a way to make a ton of money. I don't blame the compounding pharmacies. They 
We're just filling prescriptions from, you know, wants to want to make money. I blame, I blame physicians who do not give their patients information and who do not help them so that their patients are forced to listen to celebrities and to go to marginal doctors that are prescribing pellets and doing other crazy things that are not scientific based and are and, and that are harmful. So when we look at misinformation, while we can go on and on and on about what's going on in, in the public world and on the internet and this and that, women would not be going that route if they were getting good information from their own clinicians. And, and therefore the, the subject of your, your podcast, I know people now are calling the WHI misinformation because that seems to be where it all started. And all no, the-, the WHI is excellent information. If you want to know what happens to women who start hormone therapy over the age of 60, who are using an oral estrogen and a synthetic progesterone, medroxyprogesterone acetate, it's going to tell you exactly what's going to happen. It gives excellent information. It's just the wrong information. The study was designed in a way that it doesn't answer the question of what happens when you give a woman hormone therapy at the onset of menopause. Now, as you know, when you look at the WHI and you look at the 50 to 60-year-old group, particularly the estrogen-only group, that's when you get a lot of information that really tells you what's going on. That's when we see, okay, there's a decrease in breast cancer in women who are taking estrogen, not an increase, a decrease. And so it's really good information, but it's like everything else. The devil's in the details. You need to know how to interpret it instead of just blanketly saying this was a bad study. We're very cautious about the words we use and we feel that words are important. And when we were setting up this podcast, we talked about the word provider and and how disturbing it is to you. Would you please explain why you don't like this word? The word provider is not intended to be insulting, but it actually is. And it's a word that really does not describe, as I'm, as far as I'm concerned, the professionalism of physicians and other clinicians. Where does it come from? Well, where it comes from is the idea that we want to be inclusive, that it's not just physicians that are providing clinical care, but it's also physician assistants and nurse practitioners. And this is not about that. I want to be inclusive of those clinicians because they are outstanding. My entire clinic was staffed by PAs and nurse practitioners who are amazing and knowledgeable. So provider came about as a way to include them, but it wasn't intentional, but it really, really is kind of a put down. It's making medicine transactional. It detracts from the professionalism of what we do. You would never call an attorney a provider. The roots of the word provider for physicians is from the Nazis, believe it or not. The Nazis wanted to put down the Jewish doctors. And so when they would bring them to the concentration camps and they wanted them to to give medical care, but they would just call them providers. It was a derogatory term saying, you're not professionals. You're just people that are providing a service, like selling shoes. So it's transactional. I'm providing a service and you're going to give me money for it. And it detracts from the professionalism. It's important to use words that are inclusive, like clinician and healthcare professional. And yeah, I want to be, I'm a physician. Call me a physician. I, you know, work long and hard to be a physician. 
And I, if you are referring to me specifically, I would like to be referred to as a physician. But when we are talking about medical care in general and we want to be inclusive, that's when I use terms like healthcare professional or clinician. That's a beautiful explanation. And I will put, uh, you sent me an article that I will put in the uh, show notes of of the podcast that was fantastic. I mean, it even uh, said the different uh, words in German. And as an aside, there are actually healthcare systems that are very aware of this and are no longer using that terminology. And it has become part of the pop popular lexicon. Uh, I would like to see that change. And I think that it's worth making the effort to no longer use that terminology. Well, well I hope we've, we're going to accomplish that with this podcast. In some Absolutely. Um, one last thing um, you've uh, started uh, doing menopause retreats that you're going to start next February. Um I just wanted to know what your inspiration was for doing, you know, talk about what it is and what was your inspiration for for doing these retreats for women? My inspiration was from another New York Times article that I was quoted in about a month ago when they were looking at these retreats in terms of are they beneficial? What are women getting? And at that point, I honestly wasn't very much aware of these retreats. And I started to look at them before I did the interview with the reporter. And I thought, oh, my God this is terrible. These women are paying huge amounts of money and they're going off and they, and I'm not making this up. They are literally given energy drinks and told to wear gravity boots. And there's one that they do like a fire circle. And I'm like, since when do you put women with hot flashes around a fire circle? I mean, are you kidding? And it was all, I mean, it was great in that there was all kinds of community and bonding and all that. And that's lovely, but there was no real information. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do my own retreats and not only have real information, but have real experts. So I got together about 10, 12 women um, who are phenomenal. And they're all names that you know, you know, Lisa Larkin and Stephanie Fobian and the true, true menopause academic experts and said, would you participate in these retreats? And they said, sure. So I'm, I'm putting it out there. Um, it's interesting. I've had a lot of people going to the website and taking a look. We've honestly not had a lot of people sign up, and I think it's because it's pricey. And maybe I miscalculated that people also wanted to have an incredible spa vacation at the same time, which is why it is pricey. And I might be better served to do in-city retreats that it's just a day or two days in a downtown hotel where we don't get the massages and the facials and the hikes, but just give some real information. And my motivation, of course, is my motivation for doing everything I do, whether it's my books, my podcast, it's to give women real information so that they can make good choices. And everybody learns differently. Some people read, some people listen to podcasts, some people do much better with an in-person experience. I, I really applaud you. Uh, one of the big take-homes from the misinformation talk was you fight misinformation with evidence-based information. And I thank you for taking the time today to, to talk to me. Hopefully we, we look forward to maybe meeting up with you again. So talk to you again soon. Thank you. Look forward to that. So a few things. First of all, I want to let you know what happened with the menopause retreat that I mentioned last month. And then again, during this episode, as I told Dr. Gibbs, 
There was a lot of interest, but not a lot of people signed up. The feedback I got was that while it sounded great, doing it at a luxurious resort just made it too expensive. So I'm going to plan some in-town retreats that will probably be two days and a night, plenty of time to get lots of information, meet the experts, still have time to socialize, but not be so pricey. The first one will be in Chicago, since that's where I live, likely in late spring. If that goes well, I'll take it on the road. If you're interested, sign up for my free newsletter. Both so you'll know when and where these retreats are happening, but also because people who get the newsletter find out about these events first before they fill up. The Dyspareunia paper published in the June issue of Menopause that Dr. Gibbs mentioned is a comprehensive review of all of the causes of painful sex post-menopause. I'll put a link in the program notes, but it is behind a paywall. So unless you have a subscription to the journal, you'll only be able to see the abstract, which is basically a short summary of the article. At some point, I will do an episode on that topic. I know I went on and on about not calling medical professionals providers, but it is something that has become ubiquitous and increasingly bothersome to many clinicians. If you're interested in learning more on this topic, there's a link in the program notes to an article titled, What's in a Name? The Problematic Term Provider, written by Dr. J.R. Scarf, that beautifully explains, better than I did, why the term provider is offensive and demeaning, even though I know it's not meant to be. And finally, I would really encourage you to check out Sex Ed for Sex Med. It's a podcast that not a lot of people know about, but it's very high level. And Dr. Gibbs has some of the top names in sexual medicine and menopause as guests. Thanks for joining me. You'll find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. Go to drstriker.com to sign up for my free newsletter and follow Francie as she navigates her way through midlife, menopause, and beyond.